I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Welcome to Hashtag History, episode 11. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this week, our inaugural episode of season two, we are reversing the roles and I will actually be taking the reins and hopefully not steering us off of a cliff. (laughs) How do you feel about this role reversal, Rachel? I am so excited. I am so excited about being on the other side of it, but I have to say I'm kind of nervous uh, being on the other you're end. Ner- like, all you have to do is make funny comments. I... <laughs> That's what I'm nervous about. <laughs> I am very nervous, um, and I hope that I do you proud, but here we go. I'm so excited. <laughs> so for this episode, and I do apologize, let me just apologize in advance. You might hear a cat meowing in the background. <laughs> Said cat is my new kitten. And he is new not, baby. Yeah, he's six months old. And he's not even in the room, and you can still hear him, so <laughs> I do apologize. All good. Mal gives his regards. Okay. <laughs> So for this episode, I really wanted to find a subject that A, I was passionate about, but also B, that I had at least a little bit of prior knowledge um, for my takeover episode. And I just kept circling back to Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So way back when, aka the summer after I graduated high school, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, I went... (laughs) I went on a Jack the Ripper tour in London, um, which was so fun and so cool. Uh, So they walked us around like the streets of uh, the neighborhood where all of the uh, murders took place. So I feel like I have a little bit of insight into this crazy, crazy murder spree. And then Rachel, don't you also have a little knowledge more than like the layman's person of Jack? (laughs) Um, sadly, I will admit that I do when I am not doing history things, I am doing all true crime things. So I have watched about 7,000 documentaries, read 7,000 books about Jack the Ripper. So I do feel like I know quite a bit. I also, when I was in London in March of this year, uh, we wanted to do that tour where they take you around London, but it was hailing at the time. So we did the museum, though, and that was really, really cool. So I have like a little personal insight into it as well. Nice. So I love it because it ties perfectly with Halloween time. It is October. So I am super pumped. How about you? Pumped. Okay. This episode should be releasing just days before Halloween. So this is our special Halloween edition episode spooky edition majority of us at least vaguely know about Jack the Ripper. And even if you don't know the details, you at least have heard his name, right? Yes. Like everyone's heard of him. Yes. Okay. Even like millennials that don't know anything (laughs) about history, which I am included in that boat. So in today's episode, we're going to dive deep and take a much closer look at Jack the Ripper some of his victims, and the many theories, and I mean many theories, as to who he was, what his, what his motives were, and whatever happened to him. But first, Miss Rachel, I believe you have a cocktail to introduce. I do have a cocktail to introduce, and I have to tell you, it is super weird being on this side of things, and I feel incredibly unqualified, (laughs) but I am so excited about this episode and about shaking up the roles and the opportunity to introduce a new cocktail. 
The cocktail we are trying this week is quite literally called the Jack the Ripper Whiskey Cocktail. (laughs) We like to be literal here. (laughs) Yeah, that is an actual thing, you guys. And although the combination of the ingredients for this cocktail is kind of funky to me, I know at least the two of us, Leah, we like at least all of these items individually. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a good combo. You think so? I do. I do. The look of it is delicious, guys. It looks like an iced coffee. It is like a beautiful brown color. I I can't wait to get to it. So let me just explain real quickly what it is so that we can get into it. The liquor used for this whiskey cocktail is, of course, Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels, Jack the Ripper, same, same. Um, I'll be honest, though, that I did not use Jack Daniels. Because... No, me neither. I used Jim Beam. And I used Jim Beam because that's what I bought off of you from what was left over from your wedding stash. <laughs> right, because we had like six bottles of it left. And so that is what I used, too. So here's to hoping it's still great. I'm sure it will be great. Yeah, so it's four ounces of whiskey, which as I was pouring that in, I was like, oh, my goodness. That's a half cup i was like trying to do the measurements and i was like okay how can i do this that's a half cup of whiskey in one drink yes more more than two shots so i was like okay uh so four ounces of whiskey half of a fresh squeezed orange two ounces of cinnamon simple syrup which i made myself and two teaspoons of salted caramel. I feel like the most controversial thing we will ever face on this podcast is the fact that I just said caramel instead of caramel. Yes. (laughs) But I'll tell you guys, I have zero consistency with the interchanging of that word. I'll go to Starbucks and ask for a caramel macchiato with extra caramel, all (laughs) in the same sentence. It's really just the context. It is the context. So don't come at me, guys. I use both. To make that cinnamon simple syrup, you just use one cup of water and one cup of sugar. Yes, a full cup of sugar. Yeah. And exactly five cinnamon sticks. You bring the sugar and water to a boil and then add the cinnamon sticks after the water has dissolved. And then just to garnish your drink and make it look extra fancy, you take those same cinnamon sticks, store them in your fridge, and then pop them back in the drink when you are ready to actually drink it. So truthfully, I was not able to locate any history on this particular cocktail because when you do a Google search for Jack the Ripper cocktails, there are about a dozen different kinds of cocktails that people have created for their own little Halloween parties, and they're all called the Jack the Ripper cocktail. Of course, yeah. (laughs) But this one looked the most delicious to me. I got all of um, this information off of the website. It's called Mm feedfeed.com. And I'm really stinking excited. So let's drink up. Yes. Okay. I've been Cheers. waiting. <laughs> Me too. Mm. I love it. Yeah. Mm. I don't think I put quite as much caramel as the recipe called for, but everything else I did exactly. Uh-huh. And I am, I love it. It's very, I, like, Christmassy to me, honestly. Yes. Like, fall um, or Christmas, yeah. I'm in love. Yeah. I'm I'm actually in love right now, you guys. It is so good because it has um, a thicker texture to it. Oh, yeah. It's all, it's, like you said, it's almost like a latte texture or something. Uh-huh. Um, it, and yes. I actually used a shaker and actually shook mine this Did time. Did you? Yes. And You're I, supposed to, but yeah, I don't have one. I, I got one from Visit Rancho Cordova. It's like a plastic shaker. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I'm in love. And now I'm even more excited about shaking up the rolls and you doing all the talking so I can just sip this thing the entire time. I know. I'm going to be pulling a Rachel and only be like <laughs> three sips in by the time we're done. <laughs> and I'll be finished halfway through. Yeah. Um, that's usually my role. <laughs> love it. <laughs> okay. Let's get started. Now, firstly, let me start by saying that we will be discussing some extremely graphic and certainly disturbing occurrences in this episode. So anyone who feels uncomfortable should go ahead and just tune out of the entire episode because pretty much every, I don't know, every 10 words they're talking about 
gross things. Yeah. So whereas we normally do like a two or three minute trigger warning, don't listen to the next 60 seconds. Guys, just, yeah, just the whole actual thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Now that you've been warned, um, Jeff the Ripper, he was a serial killer who terrorized the streets of Whitechapel, located in the East End of London, from 1888 to around 1891, but I have to stipulate that those dates are questioned to this day. Yes. Atta- yeah. Attacks attributed to him typically involved female prostitutes who lived and worked in Whitechapel, whose throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilation. The removal... <sighs> yeah. It's really, really bad. Um, the removal of internal organs from at least three of the 11 possible victims led to speculations that the killer had some anatomical or surgical knowledge, but that has never actually been confirmed. And we'll go into that more later. Mm-hmm. So a little background first. In the mid-19th century, the East End of London was, well, it was a crap hole, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> There was a huge influx of Irish, Jewish, and other Eastern European immigrants to Britain, especially to London, causing major overcrowding. That's really interesting to me. I've done, because I've done so much research um, on American studies, Mm -hmm. and I, of course, know about the huge influx of immigration to America around the same time period. Mm -hmm. That's actually really interesting to me to hear that about um, London. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes sense. It's like one of the biggest cities cities in, yeah. in Europe, in Western Europe. So How neat. Yeah. So housing conditions worsened severely during this time, causing an economic lower class to develop that didn't previously exist. Crime was commonplace. Alcohol dependency worsened. hey And <laughs> all... <laughs> that, that was inappropriate. I might cut that out. <laughs> And all this super fun stuff uh, drove many women into prostitution. In fact, in October of 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as prostitutes in Whitechapel area of East London alone. Oh my god. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, Whitechapel was half a square mile in diameter and contained over a thousand prostitutes. That is insane. Yeah. So the more reading I did, the more I found references that prostitution was just like a side hustle for the majority of the women in the area. It wasn't like their main profession. (laughs) Um, Margaret Harkness, a social researcher and writer at the time, rented a room in Whitechapel around this time in order to make direct observations of the degraded slum life. She described the Whitechapel neighborhood in her novel In Darkest London. Rachel, uh, do you mind reading an excerpt from this? I would love to. Thank you. In the middle of this place was a large heap of refuse, a sort of general dustbin into which the people of the neighborhood threw rags, cabbage stalks, and other things which were not wanted. Sometimes a baby tumbled into the gutter and was picked up by a child not much bigger than itself who swore at it. I have never seen anything to equal what I see in these streets. And what makes it so terrible to me is the fact that not a mile away, people are enjoying every luxury. Yeah, I I actually found, I skimmed through a lot of um, of this book in Darkest London, and mm-hmm. I it w- was really interesting. I know that um, hygiene has never been, or until recently, was never a high priority, mm-hmm. especially in cities. But it was kind of crazy. Some of the the um, the images and the references she made in her book. I, wow. if you're at all interested in it, I highly recommend it. It wasn't obviously just about the prostitution or the dirtiness. It was like all around what it's like living in Whitechapel at this at that time, and it was super interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, sounds like a super fun place, right? (laughs) Uh, no. (laughs) Okay. So, Rachel, it's time for you to describe our first set of photos, which is actually our only set of photos, to our listeners. So, go ahead and take a look at the photos labeled Whitechapel 1 and Whitechapel 2. 
Okay, so I'm looking at the first one. Um, obviously, a black and white photo. All well, I was gonna say all women. I do see one dude, um, but primarily women. Maybe about a dozen of them in this very narrow alley, looking pretty glum. There's a lot of them, and they're all ages. I'm seeing women that look like. Uh, maybe as close to 60 and then children, like one that's probably maybe two years old. Yeah. Yeah. There was no specific thing about this picture I wanted to point out. I just thought Mm -hmm. it was really cool to see like, you know, a day in the life of these people. And you can see there's one woman in particular, she's on the right side of the photo that she Mm -hmm. looks pretty old to me. And but she's like out and about on the street, I'm assuming like working or something, hopefully not as a prostitute. But (sighs) it's just crazy. It's crazy that like, even the elderly in this neighborhood had to had to be working. Yeah. And then yeah, the second picture, um, you might have to help me figure out exactly what I'm looking for here. I can see everyone, black and white again, people are scrambling, um, kind of searching the ground mm-hmm. for something. Um, they're, they're searching through a pile of trash, Rachel. Oh. Yes. This is one of those, uh, described as described in that, um, that book that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. It is just a giant pile of trash, and this is just what the wow. streets look like. That is really devastating. Um, we'll post these pictures later, but they're literally, that's why I couldn't even figure out what it was. It is like heaps and heaps of trash. Yes. And there are all these people just digging through it. That's very sad. I think my optimistic mind did not go to that as the first thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Whitechapel was, as I said, a crap hole at this time. And sadly, murder, rape, and violence against women in particular were actually really commonplace. So the large number of attacks against women in the East End during this time adds to uncertainty as to how many victims were actually killed by Jack the Ripper. Yeah. With that said... mm -hmm. With that said... 11 separate murders stretching from 1888 to 1891 were included in London in London Metropolitan Police Service investigation and known collectively as the Whitechapel murders. Okay. As I said, opinions vary as to whether all 11 of these murders should be linked to the same culprit, but 5 of the 11 Whitechapel murders known as the canonical 5 and I hope I'm saying that right, uh-huh. are widely believed to be the work of a serial killer. So, here is where the really, really nasty stuff comes. So, really, (laughs) if you can't stomach discussions and details about murder, now is when you should tune out, please. So, most experts point to deep throat slashes, abdominal and genital area mutilation, removal of internal organs, and progressive facial mutilations as the calling card of Jack the Ripper. And prevalent in all five of the canonical five murders. So for this episode, I'm going to focus more on these five murders because it's the most everybody, most people and historians agree that that these five were very likely murdered by the same person. Yes. So I don't want to give anything away to anyone that intends to one day go to the Jack the Ripper Museum in London. Um, it's pretty neat. It's several stories. Uh, Leah, do you remember like three or four flights? Oh, no, I didn't go to the museum. I, I just oh, okay. went on the tour. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Which I think the tour was probably better than the museum. But oh. <laughs> the, the neat thing about the museum, so you go like a couple floors up, um, they kind of direct you like start on level two, then three, then four. And then the very last thing they take you to is actually um, like the basement level. And it's there that these five women um, that we're talking about right now, they have pictures of them oh, after death. You know what? Maybe yeah. we can link those pictures if we can find them. That would be really... Yeah. They're very disturbing. <sighs> okay. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't then. <laughs> just, just, um, it was a very, I can't think of the word, um, a very numbing almost uh experience being in this like below ground level room and just seeing these black and white photos original photos that 
were taken by the London police of these five women that had been brutally murdered. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get to see any photos, but I'm not. You're. I'm, I'm okay you were lucky that. one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the canonical five Ripper victims included Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. And can I just interject that those are the most English sounding names ever? <laughs> Sounds like my family. <laughs> So the canonical five carnage started when Mary Ann Nichols' body was discovered around 4 a.m. on Friday, August 31st, 1888 in Bucks Row, Whitechapel. Now, this wasn't the first murder in Whitechapel included in that overarching Whitechapel murders investigation, but it's the first of the canonical five. So Mm -hmm. Nichols' throat was severed by two cuts, and the lower part of her abdomen was ripped open by a deep, jagged wound. Mm -hmm. Several other incisions on the abdomen were caused by what was presumed to be the same knife. Wow. Eight days later, Annie Chapman's body was discovered at 6 a.m. on Saturday, September 8th. So people started to get the idea that the killer was obviously a weekend murderin' type. Yeah. Um, Similar to Marianne Nichols, the throat was severed by two cuts. The abdomen was slashed entirely open this time, and it was later discovered that her uterus had been removed and taken, which... Gross. Yes. So this case was a little different, though. It produced the first quote-unquote witness, and I'm using air quotes here for those who cannot see because there was so much conflicting data. And I think that's like an overarching thing is, uh, you know, it's obviously a a low-income neighborhood. I don't think it was the highest of priorities on the Metropolitan Police's radar, Radar, and I think generally... They didn't take really great records at that time, regardless. So, so much conflicting information. But this witness described seeing Chapman 30 minutes before her body was discovered with a, quote, dark-haired man of shabby, genteel appearance. Great description. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Very descriptive. I love it. (laughs) The next two murders took place two weeks later on the night of September 30th and were later coined the double event. Elizabeth Stride's body was discovered at about 1 a.m. in Dutfield's Yard or Dutfield's Yard, I'm not sure, in Whitechapel. The cause of death was one clean-cut incision, which severed the main artery on the left side of her neck. And the absence of mutilations to the abdomen has led to uncertainty about whether Stride's murder should be attributed to the Ripper or whether he was just possibly interrupted during her attack. Interesting. Yeah. Catherine Eddowes' um, body was later found in Meter Square in the city of London, only 45 minutes after Stride's body was found. The throat was cut once again was severed and this time the ripper obviously wasn't interrupted because the abdomen was ripped open by a long deep jagged wound the left kidney and a major part of the uterus had also been removed that's really disturbing to me those are um you always hear about killers that take trophies mm-hmm. that's his trophies big... uterus uteri Right. Not not a <laughs> pair of panties. It's like actually her left kidney and her uterus. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. Ugh. And by pretty, I mean entirely like unfathomable. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, I'm thinking this person has some serious mommy issues, right? <laughs> yeah. Like seriously. Yeah, no, agreed. So witnesses claim to have seen Elizabeth Stride with a man earlier that night. She was the first person on September 30th who was murdered. But they all gave differing descriptions. Some said fair-haired, some said dark hair, some said well-dressed, others said shabby. And apparently shabby was just an everyday term that people use to describe (laughs) not looking so put together. (laughs) Um, Now we just call people a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He was looking a hot mess. From now on, if it ever says shabby, I'm just going to say a hot mess. Okay. (laughs) Um, So a local man named Joseph Lawend. Lawend? I'm so sorry. Not a clue. Yeah. 
Um, he had passed through Meter Square with two friends shortly before Catherine Eddowes' murder, and he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Eddowes. Though his companions were unable to confirm his description, all of these conflicting witnesses left the police scratching their heads. Yeah. Yeah. To make matters more confusing for police, part of Eddowes's bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement after her murder. Some writing on the wall above the apron piece became known as the Goulston Street Graffito and stated, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed. Police Commissioner Charles Warren, um, he feared that the graffiti might spark anti-Semitic riots in a neighborhood already teetering on the brink of explosion, and with no way to actually tie the graffiti to the murders, he thought it was best to just wash it down before dawn. No oh pictures taken. Yeah. Yep. This is the type of police work that we were working Oh my with god. Yeah, so they just took it down, and to this day, it's just, um, I think they obviously mention it in police reports, but there's no actual evidence, pic- evidence or pictures of it or anything. Wow. Yeah. So that part made me giggle because by today's policing standards, washing down crucial evidence like that would have gotten you full on fired. And we know this because we watch crime shows. All the time. Forensic files, people. Fired. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So nine days later, the final and the most gruesome of the canonical five murders took place. Jane Kelly's mutilated and disemboweled body was discovered lying on the bed on her bed in the single room where she lived at 10:45 a.m. on Friday, November 9th. Her throat had been severed down to the spine, which is oh. so disgusting to think about, and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs and her heart it was missing. Mm. Yeah. Now I No, I joke, and I try to make this gruesome topic a bit lighthearted, but it cannot go without saying that these murders were beyond atrocious. They were disgusting, unfathomable, and I keep trying to imagine what would happen if something like this happened today in our town. But the thing that intrigues me, and I think so many others about the story of Jack the Ripper, are the loose ends. Yes, There are so many conflicting witnesses, so many conclusions never reached, and so many missing pieces never found, leaving us all grasping at straws as to who committed these treacherous acts. So, here's what we do know. The canonical five murders were perpetrated at night, on or close to a weekend, near the tail end of the beginning of the month. So he's a werewolf. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, right. So... That was the first fact. Second fact. The mutilations became increasingly severe as the series of murders proceeded, except for that of Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. Third fact. Nichols was not missing any organs. Chapman's uterus was taken, Eddowes had her uterus and kidney removed, and her face mutilated, and Kelly's body was eviscerated, and her face hacked away. While I don't think I mentioned that. Did Did I mention that her face was hacked away? Like they had just taken an axe or something to her face. Um, Though only her heart was missing from the crime scene. Only her heart. Okay, so were these five murders truly committed by the same person? Were any of the 11 other murders that took place around the same time period linked to him as well? In 1894... 94? Oh my god. In 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, assistant chief constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and head of the Criminal Investigation Department, that's a mouthful, um, he wrote a report that stated the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. So he was very, very sure that, that these were the 11 other murders or whatever were not connected. Without getting political, I do just want to say that narrow-minded cops um, get under my skin. Mm-hmm. As confident as you may feel about something, have a freaking open mind. Seriously. Because because you're not going to find your murderer when your mind is set so narrowly. Yeah. Anyway. 
Anyway, um, some researchers have suggested that some of the murders were undoubtedly the work of a single killer, but an unknown larger number of killers acting independently were responsible for the others. So Dr. Percy Clark, assistant to the examining pathologist George Baxter Phillips, linked only three of the murders and thought that the others were perpetrated by, quote, weak-minded individuals induced to emulate the crime. Mm. So who done it, right? Right. In the early days, the police appear to have believed that the crimes were being carried out by one of the local gangs, and thus their investigations focused on these so-called high-rip gangs. However, by early September 1888, the police had come to the conclusion that were the local gangs responsible, the publicity and panic that the murders had generated would have led one of the members to inform on the others. Because that's how gang life works. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I guess there's lots of informants, which I guess that's true. If you watch The Departed, you know. (laughs) By the time of the murder of Annie Chapman, which took place on September 8th, the police seemed to have decided that they were, in fact, looking for a lone assassin and began seeking ways of bringing him to justice. There was a great amount of speculation that the killer demonstrated some amount of medical and or anatomical knowledge. To this end, the police began looking into the activities of several medical students who had spent time in asylums. Wow. Yeah. What a narrow niche. Oh, so there are several medical students (laughs) that have spent time in asylums. That's such a narrow niche and there were several to investigate (laughs) that's true um however these students were eventually ruled out by involvement in the crimes due to rock solid abs i mean alibis Um, (laughs) others disagreed that the murderer was demonstrating any great degree of medical skill and argued that his abilities were little more than those of a butcher so Mm. the police of course then carried out extensive inquiries amongst the numerous local butchers and slaughterhouses. But yet again, nothing came of their investigations as all the alibis checked out. So throughout the hunt for Jack the Ripper, the police remained convinced that they were looking for a suspect who lived in or near Whitechapel. So their inquiries and investigations focused almost exclusively on residents of the neighborhoods where the crimes were committed. Because no one can walk a half mile to commit a gruesome murder, right? (laughs) Right? Right. (laughs) Over 2,000 interviews were carried out by the Victorian police officers. More than 300 people were actually investigated, and 80 people were detained in police custody. It is possible that Jack the Ripper was one of these, but none of the interviews, investigations, or detentions yielded anything concrete that enabled the police to point the finger at one suspect and say, yo, this Jack the Ripper. Wow. I want to interject just for half a second to say that I was listening to a podcast about um, like an infamous serial killer And when they ended up finding out who the guy was, it was someone that they had interviewed, investigated, looked hardcore into like 20 years before. Who was it? Like uh, Actually capturing him. It's um, the podcast is called The Clearing. It's amazing, you guys. And it's about a serial killer. Um, His name was Ed Edwards. And just I mean, this just reminded me of it because it was someone he was someone that they had looked into pretty extensively like 15, 20 years before they officially nailed him for the crime. And it's like in those 15 to 20 years between, he kind of got thrown to the wayside. We kind of forgot about him while we, you know, chased after other leads. So you saying that right now that perhaps Jack the Ripper was one of those 80 people that were investigated by the police. I think it's a high probability. Yeah. Yep. I have a feeling we'll never know. Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, I do too. So... Ever since the murders ended, suspect after suspect has been pushed out by ripperologists. And yes, I'm that's so, what they like to call themselves. I'm so glad you said that because um, I listened to a Jack the Ripper podcast and they refer to themselves as ripperologists. Yes, they yeah. they uh, they run deep. They <laughs> um, are very serious about their theories and don't mess with them. No, that's all I, I won't. Have to say. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The lineup of possible suspects has included everyone from the father of Winston Churchill, Mm. Alice in Wonderland's author Lewis Carroll, and Prince Albert Victor, grandson of Queen Victoria. Wow. 
So some have even speculated that Jack the Ripper was, in actuality, Jill the Ripper. Mm. Topping the list of female suspects was Mary Piercy, who was executed in 1890 after butchering her lover's wife and child with a carving knife in a similar manner to Jack. Wow. Yeah. So, because there are literally over 30 individuals currently listed as suspects, I just wanted to focus on four of my personal favorites and the ones that, while I was doing my research, kind of just stood out to me as most interesting. But keep in mind, like I said, there are 30 individuals currently listed as suspects. 30. Yes. So, first and foremost, you have James Maybrick. So, in 1992, a junkyard scrapper from Liverpool, Michael Barrett, claimed he found the diary of James Maybrick. While the diary never explicitly stated it belonged to Maybrick, contextual clues made it super clear that it did. Maybrick died in May of 1889, almost a full year after the canonical five murder spree ended. And shortly after his death, his wife Florence was arrested and charged with murdering him by poisoning him with arsenic. Wow. So this suspect theory tends not to hold too much weight, even though I find it super interesting. Mm -hmm. Because Michael Barrett, the guy who discovered the diary, later admitted that he forged the document and then later retracted that confession. So... Not the most steadfast character. Um, It also had a lot of quote-unquote facts that didn't mesh with police investigations of the murder. Ah, next. Next, okay. (laughs) I just thought it was interesting that his wife killed him. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. All right, next up, you have Aaron Kuzminski, which that's a super Polish name. Yeah. So Kuzminski was a Polish Jew who was admitted to Kolny Hatch Lunatic Asylum in 1891. Mm. Kuzminski, without a forename, was named as a suspect by Sir Melville McNaughton, who was the assistant commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police, in his 1894 memorandum, and by former Chief Inspector Donald Swanson in handwritten comments in the margins of his copy of Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs. So basically, two people heavily involved in the um, the case, uh, mm-hmm. trying to find Jack the Ripper, had mentioned Kosminski. I don't know if he was ever brought in for questioning or anything, but he was mentioned multiple times. Got it. And how cute is it that the average Joes used to write memoirs and then their peers would make notes in the margins? <laughs> Adorable. Well, Anderson wrote that a Polish Jew had been identified as the Ripper, but that no prosecution was possible because the witness was also Jewish and refused to testify against a fellow Jew. So in his memorandum, McNaughton stated that no witness ever directly identified someone as the Ripper, which directly contradicts Anderson's recollection of a Jewish witness withholding information. Interesting. Yeah, so in 1987, author Martin Fido searched asylum records for any inmates called Kosminski and found only one, Aaron Kosminski. So, Kosminski lived in Whitechapel at the time of the murders. However, he was described as, quote, harmless during his time in the asylum. That means nothing. Yeah. His his insanity took the form of auditory hallucinations and paranoid fear of being fed by other people, which is a strange concept to me because that sounds dreamy. Like like being fed by other people? Yes. Yes. Sign me up. Right? (laughs) Like, please, I would love to be fed by people constantly. (laughs) That's awesome. And then his insanity also took the form of a refusal to wash or bathe and self-abuse, which is Mm. sad. Yeah. Um, In his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, former... I have this book. Do you really? Yes. Oh my God, you're such a dark. (laughs) (sighs) By John Douglas. Yes, the former FBI profiler, John Douglas, um, (laughs) states that a paranoid individual such as Kaminsky would likely have openly boasted of the murderers while incarcerated had he truly been the killer, but there's no record that he ever actually did that. So That is interesting. Yeah. I do do trust John Douglas's opinion. Okay. You you value his opinion highly. Like, very highly. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) Read several of his books, actually. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) 
2014, DNA analysis linked Kosminski with a shawl said to have belonged to victim Catherine Eddowes, the fourth victim in the canonical five murders, Mm. which is intriguing. But, of course, experts, including Professor Sir Alec Jeffries, who invented genetic fingerprinting, later dismissed the claims as unreliable. So Kosminski, oh my God. I think the drink's getting to me. So Kosminski's guilt could never be proven. So Mm. moving on to my third and favorite suspect, Charles Allen Lechmere or Lechmere. I'm going to say Lechmere. Okay. Also known as Charles Cross. He was a meat cart driver for Pickford's company and is conventionally regarded as an innocent witness who discovered the body of Polly Nichols. Polly was part of the overarching Whitechapel murder spree, but wasn't part of the canonical five murders. Mm. So the documentary Jack the Ripper, The New Evidence, was the first to propose that Lechmere was the Ripper. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Lechmere was the first to, quote, discover Polly Nichols' body and called over a witness to look at her. At this time, no blood was visible, but by the time a constable found her shortly afterwards, a pool had formed around her neck, suggesting the cut to her throat was very fresh when Lechmere and the other witness were present. Like, wow. within seconds of them finding her body. So Wow. In addition, neither man reported seeing or hearing anyone else in Buck's Row, which had no side exits. So if it had just happened, they would have seen someone exiting. So it was theorized that Lechmere had killed Nichols and begun the process of mutilating her body when he heard the second witness's footsteps and then rushed to portray himself as the discoverer of her body. Lechmere did not come forward until others mentioned him to the press, and he gave evidence under the name Charles Cross at the inquest. Cross was the surname of a stepfather of Lechmere's. That is intriguing. mm Mm-hmm. There's more. Lechmere's home address, um, visits to family, and the route to work that he took every day link him to the times and places of many of the murders. Wow. He passed three streets where Martha Tabron, an early victim often associated with Jack the Ripper, Polly Nichols, and Annie Chapman were murdered roughly at the same time the murders are estimated to have occurred. So along his route to work, these three murders took place at the time he would have been walking past them. That's very coincidental. Mm Mm-hmm. The double event murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes occurred on a Saturday, his only night off from work. Mm. Stride was killed near Lechmere's mother's house in an area he grew up in, and the direct route from Stride's murder scene to the location of Eddowes' murder follow a path to Lechmere's route to work that he had used for 20 years. Wow. Yes. Mary Kelly was also murdered on his route to work. And the time frame in which she is estimated to have been killed matches his route. Although the day she was killed was a holiday and he may have actually had the day off. May. May. Can I also just say if it is him, what a freaking weirdo that like, I'm headed to work, la-di-da, there's a lady, let me kill her. Off and to then work like, again. <laughs> and off to work we go. Yes. Wow. So Lechmere's family background is also similar to that of many serial killers. He grew up in a, quote, broken home, having never known his biological father. He had two stepfathers, and his childhood was characterized by instability, growing up in a series of different homes, etc., and possibly Mm -hmm. abuse, if I remember correctly. Wow. So, in addition, his occupation as a meat cart driver would have allowed his blood-splattered appearance to just totally escape suspicion. Yeah. Which interesting yes holmgren believes that lechmere may have been responsible for several other murders in addition to those of the canonical five victim and martha tabron very interesting yeah see it was all this stuff reading about him that i was like okay he's my top pick yeah um i'm trying to think was there anything in there that you said that was like but but i don't think so yeah Mm -hmm. interesting all right 
So moving on to the last suspect, he this one used to be my favorite, but then I read about um, Lechmere and I was like, nah, he my favorite. <laughs> but this one is just the most interesting and it's, it's pretty pretty out there and crazy if it was true. Love is it. Prince Albert Victor, who is the Duke of Clarence and Avondale. Prince Albert Victor was first mentioned in print as a potential suspect when Philip Julian's biography of Clarence's father, King Edward the Seventh, <laughs> was published in 1962. So Julian made a passing reference to rumor that Clarence might have been responsible for the murders. Though Julian did not detail the dates or sources of the rumor, it is possible that the rumor derived indirectly from Dr. Thomas E. A. Stowell, who in 1960 told the rumor to this guy, who told the story to that guy, and so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. Got it. Yeah. Basically, just through the grapevine. So regardless, the theory was brought to major public attention in 1970 when an article by Stowell was published in in the criminologist that revealed his suspicion that Prince Albert had committed the murders after being driven mad by syphilis. Mm. The suggestion was widely dismissed as Albert Victor had strong alibis for most of the murders and there were no actual reports of him ever having syphilis. Um, Stowell later denied implying that Clarence was the Ripper, covering his tracks, I think, and he passed away before any further investigations could be deemed conclusive. And then to top it off, the same week he died, Stowell's son reported that he had burned his father's papers, saying, I read just enough to make certain that there was nothing of importance. That's fishy. Yeah. So there goes any research that may have proven it was the prince. Wow. Another theory also involving Prince Albert is that all of the murders were actually a conspiracy to cover up his homosexual exploits. Rumors about the prince's sexual orientation followed him throughout his adult life, and although nothing was ever confirmed, it is fairly widely accepted that he was a homosexual. He did visit gay brothels. Yes, they even existed then. And he may have had a couple people murdered to cover his tracks. Nah. Yeah, so... I don't know. Several theorists suggest that Jack was actually more than one killer. Um, Some suggest that the murders were a conspiracy involving multiple criminals, um, whereas others have proposed that each murder was committed by unconnected individuals acting independently of each other or possibly influenced by each other. Mm -hmm. The police believe that Ripper was a local Whitechapel resident, as I said before. And his apparent ability to disappear immediately after the killing suggested an intimate knowledge of the Whitechapel murder. Murderhood? The Whitechapel <laughs> neighborhood. Including his back alleys and hiding places. So, um, the population of Whitechapel was transient, impoverished, and often used aliases. The lives of many of its impoverished residents were little recorded, despite continued interest in the case, as well as ongoing investigation by both professional and amateur researchers. The Ripper's true identity will almost certainly never be known. Yeah. I know this episode probably only raises more questions in your mind about Jack the Ripper than answered them, but this is what is so fascinating about this case and why almost 150 years later we're still talking about it so little is known and there are so many facts that contradict each other and so so many theories have been born so rachel what do you think oh what do i think um i think it's really sad i think Murder is always sad, but I think having your guts ripped out and your heart stolen um, are really sad. I think that the lives of women that were working as prostitutes are so disregarded and not given the proper attention. Um, I think it's really sad to me, this whole thing that obviously... Whoever Jack the Ripper was, whether it was one person or individ- uh, several individuals, although I believe it was only one person, um, he obviously knew that the police did not consider women working as prostitutes with high regard. And so he took advantage of that. And the whole thing just makes me really sad. Um, I, I think of the individuals that you mentioned, I think my favorite is probably also Lechmere. 
Is that how you said it? Lechmere? Lechmere? Yeah, Lechmere. Were there any individuals that you've heard in in all of your extensive research (laughs) Um, Um, and reading books that that you found more interesting or more likely? No. Um, The one that you mentioned, um, Kosminski, Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot about him before, and he has kind of always been my favorite, Um, but I haven't really done anything, heard anything on uh, Lechmere, and that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't heard of him before I started doing a little bit of research either, so. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Right, guys, um, that is it for this episode of Hashtag History. We will have a link to our website in the show notes so you can see the pictures of Whitechapel as well as some pictures of Rachel's visit to the Jack the Ripper Museum in London. Yes. Okay. Um, and my Jack the Ripper tour in London from when I was 18 years old, if I can find the pictures, no guarantee. Wipe the dust off. Yeah. <laughs> I really will have to, like, take a picture of a printed picture. To, like, that's what I will have to do. So we will also post these pictures to our Instagram for your viewing pleasure. And the link in the show notes to our website is also where you can go to see all of the sources we use to put together this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use. Share it with a friend and give us a rate and review. I do want to say something right there. Um, When we ask for reviews, we aren't asking them just to boost our own ego. It actually helps us with podcast algorithms. The more reviews, um, five-star reviews we get, the higher up we get on the charts to where people can actually find us. So do us a favor, give us a five-star review. If you've been listening to the podcast and just haven't done that yet, we would so appreciate it just because it helps us um, have a greater reach to more people. Yeah, and be sure, as always, to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. And definitely be sure to come back next week for a special episode. I don't know, Rachel, if you want to give a clue or a hint as to what the topic will be. Um, think creepy. Another creepy one, guys. Another creepy one, guys. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.